I'm Andrew. And I'm Chris. We're the host of True Believers, a comic book podcast, our weekly show about all things comics. Welcome to our first special bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the graphic novel Parallel. Parallel is a dark, mysterious, single-issue indie graphic novel by writer Jason Douglas, artist Adam Ferris, and letterer Justin Birch. It has been nominated for two awards at the 2021 Ringo Awards for both Best Writer and Best Single Issue or Story. We are really, really excited for this episode because we have writer Jason Douglas here with us today. How are you, Jason? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you. Okay, so we obviously have read the story, but for our listeners who haven't read it yet, just give us a quick rundown of what it's about. Okay, sure. So Parallel is, uh, it's my very first comic. This is a lifelong dream for me, you know, uh, come true. Uh, It's a 64-page, one-shot graphic novel. Um, dark, twisted sci-fi tale that like, begs the question of the reader, what price would you pay for a second chance of the dreams you thought you left behind forever? And that's kind of like, that's, that's my, that's my 10 second, like, you know, get you kind of thing. And, and you, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about like how that relates to people and how that might be a kind of a universal theme, but the story itself, um, it, it kind of comes in two levels, Right. Like I said, it's a pretty dark sci-fi twisted tale. And that's the, that's the comic book nerd in me, right? That goes back for decades now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but it's really, really this story uh, about a character who could be anybody named Landon, who in his early 20s uh, gives up on his dreams, sets aside his dreams, defers his dreams, as we said earlier, uh, of a career in music, right? And he sets that aside at like 21 because when you're 21, you have all the time in the world, or at least you think you do. And he kind of comes to, you know, 10 years later, pushing 30 and having what we're calling the quarter life crisis these days. Now, uh, my version of this is a lot closer to a midlife crisis, but we <laughs> all have this at some point or not. Right. And and at his nadir uh, for him, it's manifesting as like this stagnant life, the depression, the existential dread of time passing you by. And it just moves faster and faster. And maybe I don't have a shot at the things that I thought I had at. And at his nadir, uh, he starts to hear voices and he starts to see visions, um, questions his sanity as anybody would, of course. But what we have here is an alternate version of him reaching out, offering him that second chance that he thought he had left behind. Unfortunately for our Landon, the cost of that second chance, very much not in his best interest mentally and physically in the here and now. So it gets pretty dark and hairy in the second half. It was kind of uh, crescendos of tension build and he's got to make some decisions about does he want this or not yeah whenever like um other landon is what i was kind of calling him but yes, whenever the, oh can I, can I so that's what i called him writing it the entire time really he was what? always known as other landon <laughs> yep other landon in the script like literally if you read the script he, his tag is other landon colon done same even when I was making notes about it because you know we make notes about it I was sitting there like other Landon other Landon the whole time yes. I love that um but I loved when other Landon first started coming over that was some of like the best artwork in this whole thing it was amazing I loved it well well so so one of the kind of like like fanboy comic nerd dreams come true that I got to live out in this process of the last couple of years was um when SourcePoint Press hooked me up with Adam Ferris who, who does the art and I got to, number one, I got to, I wrote the, guys, I wrote the first half of this book, the first 
literal half, 32 pages. So you guys are familiar with it, the point where like Landon comes out of his coma and he's very convinced that what he's experiencing is real, right? Mm -hmm. That big splash page where he's sitting up in bed and the ventilator's on him and stuff. And I wrote that first half in a bubble. It was just me without, without a concept of this is something that's going to go into the world. There's no publisher attached. There's no artist attached. This is just me scratching that itch that I had to, because that was the moment that I needed to tell the story. But once I got hooked up with Adam and saw sample pages and some character sketches and stuff like that, like I knew what he could do and I could write the second half. I mean, the second half of the story doesn't change in its beat so much and, and whatever, but like it got a little bit darker. Some of those crescendos, you know, that scene at the top of the stairs where Landon's got to make a pretty intense physical decision about what he's got to do to get back to this other world. Oh yeah. Um, like I got to write for Adam knowing what he could do. And, and then, so that was like a dream come true. And then the best part was, and this is such a cliche, like writers say this all the time. Like I remember rolling my eyes at this before this process for me. And it was, this kind of little minor miracle that happens when, when you're working with a collaborator who's so good that you see it in a way that you think is perfect in your head. And then like a page comes in and it's way better than anything you could ever imagine. And that just blew me away getting to experience that and see that. You're absolutely right. So I'm gonna give you a little inside baseball thing. This is not something I've told all that many people. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so, so one of the things that I'm kind of most proud about uh, with the, the feedback of this book, okay, and, and people that I've talked to and people who have bought it and people who have talked to me and reached out to me on Instagram and stuff is, is the rereadability of it, right? Like my favorite comic stories throughout years are, are self-contained things. Um, I've got nothing against monthly floppies by Marvel and DC. That's kind of what I grew up on. But like, that's a very different business model. Um, you, yeah. Some of the story tends to suffer because the business model is yeah, we don't want you to read last month's issue. We don't want you to read next month's issue. So let's keep on propelling it forward. And I like the self-contained stories that that not only have your beginning, middle, and end, but actually you're compelled to go back and read again. And that was something that was very much conscious on my mind when I was writing Parallel. I wanted something that when you got to the end and that you guys know what I'm talking about with that fairly ambiguous ending, like maybe you're compelled to go back and take a look at it again. And something that, some of the really cool feedback um, has been that when people go back and read it a second time, they interpret they interpret what's happening differently than they did the first time, right? Once you make that decision about how it ends, you can go back. And, and Landon is a character throughout this book. There are moments in the book, and, and you guys back me up on this, there's moments in the book where he clearly thinks he's losing his mind and it's all just like a psychosis. Oh, for sure. And, and then something happens and he is 100% on board convinced that it's real. Um, and the reader does that too, I think. But when you go back, what can happen is because of Adam's art, and I'm going to say this out loud, and I'm not, it doesn't even make sense when I say it out loud. Like, I don't even know <laughs> what I'm saying, but I know it's true. Like Adam can draw ambiguity. Like there was a lot of ambiguity in this script, right? Yeah. And yet, dude knew how to draw ambiguity again i don't know what that means but it's true and when you go back and read it again it's like oh oh no 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 it is real when you thought it wasn't before or oh it is in his head when you thought it wasn't before and um adam partway through the process tipped me off on this thing that he was doing because he got really excited when the decision was made to go black and white and grayscale and he started experimenting right and he literally invented certain shading techniques that he had never used before. And now this doesn't, for people who have read the book, this doesn't mean anything or maybe it means everything. 
it's up to you. But if you go back and, and look at the art again, every single time that other Landon interacts with our Landon, Adam draws a different shading effect. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. It's not, there's no consistency there. Like uh, he makes physical contact with him the first time, he makes physical contact with him the second time, and the way Adam draws it is different each time. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean it's real? Does that mean it's not real? Again, right back to up to you. It doesn't really help, but it was something so cool that he decided to do as the artist that was not in the script that completely and utterly blew me away and amazed me. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say that too. There's a lot of ambiguity in um, almost every scene in this book, so you can interpret mm -hmm. things differently every single time you read it like even as I was reading it I was sitting there like like you said is this real is this not real it's it's really good and he definitely does draw <laughs> like ambiguity very well that's a good way to say it because there's so much well, there's, things yeah there's two there's two spots in the book um that that question because like sometimes I mean there's people like, like my wife hates even the concept of ambiguity right like if, like if a movie ends without a solid ending she's like doesn't matter how much she enjoyed the movie for the first that. hour and a half, two hours. If it ends with like, wait, wait, what? It, the whole movie is ruined. Right? Off. Okay. <laughs> so there are two parts. And I can see that you, you could be, is it real or is it not? I want a definitive answer. And my two things that I put in the script that, that I think epitomize it not mattering. Number one, and this was really important to me, the way Landon interacts with his psychologist, right? When he interacts with mental health professional in this book, um, she very much makes it a point that no matter what he says, even though other people in his life are, are, are judging him for this stuff that he's saying or experiencing and going through, um, she's not there to judge him, right? Mm -hmm. um, I am not here to, to invalidate what you're saying. I'm here to listen and for us to help you, you know, get to the next day. And that was really important to me because I think that's a really important message. Um, and the second part was actually, it was probably my favorite scene to write. And I have like this very distinct memory. I like where most of this at a picnic table, at a pool, my kids were at swim practice for a summer, right? And there's this one scene that I wrote where I was out with, with my wife and her friend and there was like this, this street fair in this small town. And I just, something hit me and I sat down on this park bench as they were off doing things. And I like grabbed a piece of paper out of my back pocket and I just started writing like a madman. And that's a scene that very much plays up what is a pretty classic comic book trope. And that's the villain splaining scene, right? Oh, yeah. uh, every movie, every TV show, every comic <laughs> has got the villains playing, whether it's from, from James Bond to, 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 to Marvel, Cup, all of it, right? Oh, yeah. Villains sure. playing, right? Um, the only thing worse than, than, than mansplaining is villainsplaining, and, and, and <laughs> it happens all the time. So I put that scene in, but what I did is I, I played with it, right? There's always, you know, like, like in 60s comics, there's always sci fi, especially, there's always a scene where the villain comes up with some barely, barely believable scientific mumbo jumbo that 95% of the readership is going to go, okay, yeah, whatever. And, 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 you know, blah, 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 you know, uh, Marvel comics uh, for decades, it was, you know, radiation, right? Radiation is the cure or the thing for everything, right? It's how everybody gets their powers and blah, 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 magnetism. And what I did with other Landon in that scene, because you get kind of to the end, you get right before the climax and Landon 
is like, okay, so I know what you need from me. I know what I have to do. I know what the physical and mental cost is going to be for me to get this thing that I thought I had lost and I desire to get back this life that you've shown me. Um, but before I go through with this, I want to know why. You promised to tell me why. Like, what's in it for you, right? Like, why are you offering me this? Right? Oh, yeah. And that's the point in the movie where the villain says, blah, 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 right? And in my head, I heard other Landon saying the cliched story where it's like, oh, like my world is dying, right? And you doing this makes it whole. Or I'm in this personal crisis and you doing this allows me to X, Y, and Z. And instead of picking one of those things, which kind of stretches the, the suspension of disbelief for a reader, right? I just had other Landon do all of them. So like he, he does, you know what I mean? Like he does that. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite scenes. Right? And he like other Landon goes, goes, yeah, yeah. My world is, you know, whatever the explanation he gives. And then he goes, or, and he gives some other incredible thing or a third one. And then he kind of looks at Landon and goes, or all of it or none of it. And does it really matter? Cause this is what you want. And yeah. so it kind of brings it back to that thing of it's in his head. It's really happening. And I don't think it even matters because it's, it's, it's the dream of a life he thought he had left behind and him making a decision here is going to put a final cap on that either way, whether this is all happening for real or it's not. Yeah. I like that. It leaves it all open for our Landon to make the decision of what is happening. Right. It's a good mystery. I like it. Um, so tell us how you came up with the idea of the story. So, um, it's kind of, it's a really weird, long, long route. Like there was always a dream to do this since I was fairly young, okay? Since I was like 12 years old, there was always something kind of in the back of my mind where I said, I would love to make a comic because it was something I loved and it was something I, I thought very vaguely was a possibility, but it just sat there. It sat there for decades, guys. And there was never motivation. I mean, I literally let time pass me by. And life happened as it always does. And uh, nothing got me off my butt and got me to do it. In fact, almost a full year before I sat down and wrote that first half, like I told you about, like in a, like in a, in a bubble, um, the very raw sci-fi comic booky aspect to this was something that was brainstormed between me and a buddy of mine that I went to teacher college with. Right. And like we had like a phone conversation, like, oh, yeah, the alternate reality, reaching out, making contact with you. What does that look like? OK. And that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough of a spark uh, to get me to sit down and write something. Um, and all the while, my own personal version of what Landon's going through is getting more and more. That existential dread is building and building. Time is passing. I know I haven't, you know, but it's still not enough. It's still not enough. So. Mm -hmm. Literally the spring before the summer I write, I sit down to write this first half. The catalyst happens. And it comes from uh, my teaching career past. Uh, I've, been, I've been a public school teacher for long enough that, uh, you know, first half of my career with uh, elementary school kids, fourth graders, and now middle schools. And I've got former students that are now, you know, Landon's age, 30 and around. They're pushing 30, a little bit past 30. Okay, that's how long I've been doing. And there's this conversation with this kid that I was still in contact with. And, and she was literally having her 
quarter life crisis and saying to me, like, what, what happened? Uh, I am almost 30 and 10 years ago, it was so clear to me, I was supposed to be in Chicago opening this dance studio by like this time. And now, and I took that job to pay the bills and I'm still there. And like, how did this happen? How did 10 years go by in a blink of an eye? And it just punched me in the gut because it was so real. And it was happening to her right there. This kid that I knew was a 10 year old and um, something, something sparked, it was a catalyst. And those three things, my own existential dread of time passing and, and not accomplishing the things that I want, the, the raw sci-fi aspect of it. And then, you know, that story of the quarter life crisis coming together, dreams to fully coming together. And it was like, it just sort of burning. And, you know, whatever motivation that wasn't enough to get me off my butt before was now I had to do this. I didn't know how, I didn't know what it would be, um, but I knew I had to start telling the story. And that's kind of how it came to be. That makes sense. You were deferring your own dreams for a while. So a hundred percent. Well, that's okay. So that's, that's the thing, right? Um, the other thing that I'm probably most proud of, of this story, and certainly I was aware of it from the beginning, but like the more I think about it, the more it kind of resonates is this is a universal theme, right? Everybody goes through some version of that depression, of that dread, of that anxiety, it just manifests different for everybody and maybe at different times and maybe what triggers it is different for everybody. Yeah, like, for sure. Everybody feels this stuff, but the, 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 the kind of twisted, terrible irony is because of the nature of how personal it is, because it's about you and your choices in your life, it tends to isolate us. And we end up feeling more alone, like the more depressed we get or, or, or the more anxiety piles on or the more time passes by, we tend to isolate ourselves in those, in those feelings and, and that stagnation or whatever it is. And we feel so alone with it. And the irony is everybody's got some version of it. And one of the messages that I really hope that translates in the book, and if this, if this works for one person, I consider it a big win. And that's that you're not alone. And it's, you need to, you need to talk to somebody. You need to reach out, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's the mental health profession, like you are so, no matter how alone you feel in your version of this, you're not. Uh, everybody's got their version of it. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the mental health aspect was really good in this book too, because you showed Lynn and going to get help. And yeah. it was nice. Yeah. Well, so, so that was like, so I'm kind of actually, I'm kind of actually dancing around like something that, I, that I've talked about before, which is is how different uh, writing a comic script is from any other type of writing. And I had written some plays for elementary school and middle school drama clubs and they had been published and blah, blah, blah. And that was part of my irrational confidence where I was like, well, <laughs> if I can do that, I can do this. And it's, it's just a way different beast and right. way bigger and, and kind of scarier. And had I known <laughs> how, much, how much more difficult it was to do a comic script, <laughs> that probably would have been enough to scare me off for another 20 years. Um, but like you're, you're, what you're doing is you're balancing so much. You're literally balancing a narrative story. You're balancing a visual story. You're, you're having to think about panel size because that changes the pacing of the storytelling. Do you want this reveal to be on a facing page, a, a flip page? There's so much going on. Um, and, and one of the things that I was very, very much like aware of was I don't personally like it when your suspension of disbelief is broken by, look, look, if you're going to read science fiction or you're going to read horror or you're going to read any kind of genre, 
And part of it is a suspension of disbelief for the reader. Like you've got to believe that other worlds could exist. I truly believe that the rest of it should be as dang close to realistic as you can get. And that comes with research, right? Um, like you might not be a medical professional. Uh, and so if I kind of half-assed the ambulance scene at the beginning or the coma scene at the beginning, that might not take you out of it. But the first person who is a medical professional who reads it and it takes them out of it, like I failed. So yeah. if you look at all the professions in the book, like if you take Claire and Landon out of it, right? Um, and you look at you look at law enforcement, you look at medical professionals, you look at mental health professionals, like those kind of being the three, the triumvirate, their little triangle. Um, those were sourced and researched and actually dug into people in my life and almost kind of vaguely based on people. Uh, my cousin, the doctor, every single medical line you hear in this book, right? Everything that the paramedics say, everything that the doctor says was like, okay, cousin, uh, here's the situation. What are literally the words you would say? And she gave me a bunch of stuff that I like, I can't even say it back to you right now because I <laughs> push CC things, stuff like that, but I wasn't going to make it up. And like, she helped me with that. And a dude I went to college with, who's like in the, uh, 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 FDA, right? Or, um, uh, what is he? Anyway, some kind of law enforcement thing. He helped me with that. And our family friend who is a mental health professional helped me with like every, you know, the prescription that she gives him, that's what you would get for that, that kind of stuff. And it was really important to me to make sure that that stuff was as realistic as possible. Because if I'm going to ask you to believe for a moment or not believe and then believe again, that an alternate version of you could reach out and offer you a second chance at the life you thought you left behind at a cost, um, I'm not going to skimp on the other stuff that you know is actually real in the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a medical professional, so I would have never noticed, but that's amazing that you did all the research in that. And you watch Grey's Anatomy, so I know your view of how hospitals work <laughs> is incredibly skewed. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, so so here's how old I am, okay? I was I was an ER kid, all right? Oh, I so watched, was my mom. <laughs> so I watched, okay, I watched <laughs> ER first, but I did watch, I mean, Grey's Anatomy is now like in their 400th season, but I watched yeah. the first, God, my wife and I watched like the first seven. And it's so funny. Guys, guys, the middle schoolers still watch Grey's Anatomy. Oh, yeah. yeah. That still was going. when I was most into it. Oh, yeah. So like, I think I, I want to say about five years ago was the first wave of eighth graders. So we're talking 13-year-olds turning 14. About five years ago was the first wave where they discovered friends and they were binging friends. Oh, right? no. Um, and then there was a little Gilmore Girls phase. Yes, and there and, should always be. Okay, but like right now for the last like two, three years, there is a huge contingent of eighth graders that are just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just caught up on all the gray seasons and now we're like in 17 or whatever we are. Yes, oh my it's still God. live and well and, uh, and uh, the middle schoolers love it. <laughs> How do they have the time? How do you have the time to even... Because uh, this story came out during the pandemic, right before the school year started. So how did you oh, find yeah. the time for all this? To even to write this, to conceive it, to birth so, it? So that was, I mean, that was, okay. So I was on this cycle of writing a one-act play every summer. And then running a boot camp for my drama clubs, elementary school and then middle school. And oh, yes. Awesome. Casting and rehearsing and putting on a show. And it was literally an 11 month a year, second full-time job. And one of the things that I was noticing was 
very similar theme to what we talked about before was big chunks of my own children's lives were kind of slipping past me and I wasn't as present for it as I should have been. And so the confluence of events came together. I had that conversation with a former student. I was being very bothered by the grind of every summer I had to write this play. I was basically taking April off from not thinking about drama club and then teaching is obviously, you know, uh, September through June and blah, 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 blah. So when I sat down that summer, uh, I wrote the first half of this instead and haven't written a play since. So like most of that writing happens in the summer, though not all of it, because when I got, when I hooked up with SourcePoint Press, when I was halfway through and like hand him half the script and we've gotten business, uh, Travis McIntyre, who's the um, co-founder, president and editor-in-chief of SourcePoint, uh, I think in my head, I vaguely saw this story as like that first 32 pages, like a big fat oversized issue one, and maybe there's a second, third issue. And he's like, oh, no, 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 this is a 64 page one shot. It's a small graphic novel. You can go home. We're in business. You can go home and write me the second half, 32 pages. And I was like, it was my first lie. I go, yes, I can. <laughs> Very similar to like what actors do when they're like, you can ride a horse, right? And they're like, yes, I can. They've never even seen a horse. Except me as an actor. I want everybody to know I actually can ride a horse. <laughs> well, there you go. See, you should be cast all the time. You won't even have to lie. And I was like, yes, I can go home and write. <laughs> oh, but I'm scared of that immediately. So, yeah, I. I mean, a lot of that writing happens during the summer or during, you know, breaks from school or stuff like that, because yeah, I, I, sometimes I don't know when, and, and if I think about it too much, uh, my anxiety goes up really high. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I got, I got 180 essays to grade. Like, when am I supposed to do this? So yeah, I, I hear you. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you. Uh, <laughs> instead, what I have for you is you bringing up the fact that I don't have time has just given me a whole bunch of time anxiety that I will. Oh no, Andrew, two for two. I'm sorry, we're just the same way. I promise. <laughs> two oh, for man. two, Andrew. That's two people you've given an anxiety attack in two days. I know. I'm on a roll. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> it's a special skill, Andrew. It's a special skill. I mean, that's why we're doing this. It is Saturday morning. Usually both of us sleep until uh, what, like 1 p.m. because we hate our jobs. And <laughs> we decided to start a podcast like everybody awesome. else during the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. But you guys, I, I mean, can I ask you, I mean, was it something you had been ruminating on? Was it something, was it like an itch in the back of your head? Was it more spontaneous? Was this something you wanted to do? Oh, this, this was, was kind of meticulously planned out, but it also came about really spontaneous. Yeah, um, it was kind of our own dream deferred because we had been talking about this for at least a year or two before we finally actually sat down. It was like, why aren't we doing this yet? Like, why haven't we started yeah. it yet? Oh, we so, did start and then stop. Yeah. And then we were like, why don't we just retool this idea? And then we spent maybe like two months planning it and kind of kicking around ideas. And then we were like, just comics focused occasionally we'll watch stuff which is we've done episodes on what like <laughs> teen titans go to go uh, versus teen nice. titans. That that's is still watched that is still watched in my house well it's it's um it, it's it's something that i've been talking about with eighth graders for almost a decade now about the difference between uh children's entertainment when i was growing up in the 80s and now it's like it's so drastically different <laughs> like it was such you look back, like, like the world looks back at 80s entertainment and sees Transformers, uh, G.I. Joe, he -Man. And stuff like that, and He-Man, and goes, and, and sees it with a lot of nostalgia, but it's through rose-colored glasses. Like, those shows are hot garbage. No, that's what makes them <laughs> no, good. No, they, but, they, but they are, look, look, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm going to tell you the worst He-Man story, and I, and I, you're not going to be able to unsee it. So there is, 
there's this 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 post golden age of Disney animation sea change that for decades it was cutting as many corners and all these animation studios opened <laughs> that like literally you know it's the it's kind of the old joke of the the repeating background over and over again and using the same cells over and over again and blah 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 taking as many shortcuts as oh you yeah can. I know what and you mean and He Man used to have this thing where um to, to save money and to save drawing cells, watch him toss it. You know when he get, when he when he gets all he gets all uh, uh, hot and bothered and he tosses his sword from hand to hand. Yeah, there is very <laughs> few cells, if any, between sword in one hand and sword in the other. So like if you're looking, it literally it's just in one hand and the other. Also, him getting off of uh, what is it, Battle Cat? Uh, there's not a lot of animation in between him being on it and off of it, and it's just like, <laughs> boom, boom, and he's off, and it's just oh my god. But I mean, most of that stuff was like most, there, there was a huge variety of children's entertainment in the 80s that I grew up on that was just there to sell toys. I mean, it was just advertising. I mean, that's what G.I. Joe was. That's what Transformers was. I mean, Qbert from Atari had his own TV show for a season. What? Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Saturday oh, I'm going to have to watch that. Saturday morning cartoons, there was like this huge variety. It was basically about 85% either video games or toy licenses that already existed. And it's just not as good. And I remember like this, I think Pixar is the first company that taps into that idea that write something as smart as you can and make it for everybody. Um, but like, but like the entertainment that you guys grew up on and like my kids are, you know, we're, we're young on like, like a show like Phineas and Ferb. I remember when my kids start, started watching Phineas and Ferb. You guys are familiar, right? Yeah, I love that show. Okay. So, so, so the first time that I watched the credits, so like I watch an episode of Phineas and Ferb with my kids and I watch the credits at the end and my eyes bug out because the writers on Phineas and Ferb, like it's just, it's a murderer's role of the dirtiest filthiest smartest stand-up comedians that were working in that first decade of the, of the 21st century and you're like you're like oh my god that guy oh my god that guy can say the f word in like 40 different ways and he's a writer but what the point is they're finding these really smart people to write children's entertainment um and it's just very different from from the writing that was produced when i was a kid yeah, it's like how Seth Rogen is always in something. And it's like, whenever you think of Seth Rogen, you always think of like all his really raunchy movies. But then he does mm-hmm. other things that are like really good and like emotional. And it's like, I didn't know he had that kind of writing talent, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. But so anyways, back to Parallel. What was your process of like <laughs> actually creating the story? Well, um, so I, like I kind of mentioned before, I had this irrational confidence that I could do it. But I also didn't, I don't like to go in things blind. I'm a preparer, I'm a planner, you know? Uh, I to, feel to, that. The detriment, to the detriment, guys, of literally having a hard time to living in the moment. Like, I, have, I, I don't enjoy a moment knowing that something in the next moment is going to bother me, so I have to get that out of the way first, which just is a vicious cycle. But anyway, let's not get into my psychosis. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's Christian. She's the same way. Hey! <laughs> oh my, it's... It, it's not a way to live. I'm telling you, oh my God, your life will pass by in a blink of an eye when you're just, all you're doing is preparing for the next thing. And that's, I mean, that's it. That's what I do. I just get my um, stomach ache and I move on. Yes. So, so I, I didn't want to go in and prepare. And so my due diligence in my mind was, okay, okay, okay. 
I know it, it's not physically the same type of script. Like I, I, my muscle memory to write a, a sketch or a one act was, was pretty honed by that point. And I could sit down and close my eyes and, you know, see blocking on stage and, and, and know where this character needs to be and how these two characters need to come in from stage right or stage left and, and interact with each other and whatever. And I knew it wasn't going to be that. So I, I like poked around online for a little bit and I found like a, like a, like a sample script by a, by a comic book writer named uh, Fred Van Lanty. He's done a lot of work. And I just wanted it as an example because I wanted to, I wanted to know how many times you hit indent before you put uh, your, your, your sound effect tag or your timestamp, or, you know, do you, do you number word balloons per page or per panel? Like those kind of things, the physical structure of what a script uh, looks like. And then what kind of happened is I, I sat down with that in mind, right, with that example, and then the balancing act began, uh, like what we mentioned before, uh, the, 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 the narrative story, the themes underneath, right, dialogue, mm-hmm. internal monologue, um, pacing, you know, I don't have an artist at that point, so I am doing, I'm not, I'm not a visual artist by any means, but I was seeing what I wanted in my head, like all that geometry stuff at the beginning and the lines and um, which came straight out of fourth grade teaching, literally Uh, like all that stuff, you're trying to balance that in your head and, and trying to be creative and interesting and make it visually interesting as well as thematically and story interesting. Um, uh, uh, Playing with panel numbers on a page and slowing things down and speeding things up. And I just sat down and started writing and, and my kids were, you know, doing swim team in the summer and I took them to practice every morning and would, you know, hack out a couple of pages and just again and again and again, and you go back and you edit and revise. And I just wrote that first 32 pages in a bubble. And I kind of knew at that point, I I just, I I stopped and I was like, okay, I'm not, not one more keystroke because I'm at this point where enough time, enough effort, and enough, this might be something real has gone into this that I need to see if it can live outside of this little bubble that I've been living in for a couple of months. Um, and that's when I, oh boy, uh, my lack of frame of reference on how comics work in the 21st century could, you could probably write a book on how ignorant I am, okay? Um, I was completely oblivious to the fact that 90% of all comics in the 21st century are made through you know crowdfunding, right? Um, Kickstarter is just not on my radar, especially in indie comics, right? All indie comics are made that way. And, um, so I went to the thing that I am most, you know, you know, my, my, oh, this is, this is technology. And it was just like, literally, you know, Dr. Google was going to solve your problem. And <laughs> I started looking, you know, like, at, like at publishers online and it was pretty darn discouraging guys. Uh, uh, the vast majority of companies do not want unsolicited anything, right? Yeah. Uh, and those that will take an unsolicited submission uh, do not want your script. Um, they want art, maybe a pitch, but they definitely don't want a big fat 32 page script. And while I was discouraged by that, I think my blissful ignorance again kind of protected me. And I was like, okay, uh, I guess what I'll do is I will physically take this to a comic con and like hand it to publishers. And um, I, okay, this is how old I am. Not even how old I am, but like how old I think. <laughs> so my solution was like, it's not an email to somebody. It's literally make a copy on a copy machine 
uh, put a cover letter on it, go get the uh, file folder manila envelope from my classroom. You know what I'm talking about. And go into my desk drawer and get these pretty little colored paper clips <laughs> and put it together like I'm turning in a college paper in like 1995, you know. And, and, and I go to, the next spring, I go to Motor City Comic Con in Detroit. And my plan is I have this little stack of half the script and, and the pitch and the cover letter and blah, 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 and pretty paper clips. That's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm just going to walk around and, and, oh, that's not an artist. That's an indie little publisher, right? And it just so happened, and I got to be very careful here, okay? Because my temptation, when I talk about this process and when I talk about what's come of it and this dream that's come true for me, I tend to overuse the word luck and lucky. And some of my colleagues don't like me saying that because what it does or what they told me is it kind of undermines the blood, sweat, and tears that not only went into it for me, but all the other people once it got to source point that were involved too. So I gotta be careful, but I do consider myself very lucky or fortuitous or whatever, you know, whatever cosmic word you want to use that the very first booth I saw at Motor City Comic Con and that's uh, that spring was SourcePoint Press. They, before they have blown up as an indie publisher and are growing every day and have a, have a book deal with Simon & Schuster and have like 12 books a month in uh, previews and on and on and on, they're making feature films. Um, this was right before their big blow up, but they had cut their teeth on the convention circuit for about 10 years. They were masters of the convention circuit and they have this beautiful setup, caught my eye. And there's this dude behind the table um, kind of closest to me, but also has this spectacular red beard, very hypnotizing. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a dude I'm going to talk to. And I walk up and that just so happens again, careful with the word lucky, but that just, just so happens to be Travis McIntyre, who I told you about before. That's president, co-founder and editor-in-chief of SourcePoint. And I like, I just go into like this pitch and I've got all this, like, in, I've got the enthusiasm of a 12 year, right? Um, the, the, the one advantage of working with kids for so long is I have not grown up. Uh, uh, mentally and emotionally in a lot of ways. So like when I'm excited about something, I, I'm still 14, you know what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. and he, he's like, he's kind of looking at me sideways because I'm like handing him a packet of paper. This is not done anymore. And, and he's like, okay, this is really weird. You're a little weird, but I think I like the cut of your jib. Are you trying to, and he's like, he like kind of, he goes, are you trying to sell me a comic in 1971? Like, what do you think is happening here? And I'm like, I don't know. Like with a big smile, like, here you go. And he's like, all right, this is strange. We don't do it this way ever, but I'm going to take this back to the hotel and I'm going to read it tonight. You come back and see me tomorrow and we'll talk. And I came back on Saturday and, uh, and they, he said he wanted it. And that was when he said, like, can you go write a second half? And I lied and said, yes, I can absolutely do that without knowing if I could or couldn't. And, uh, and, and signed a contract and we're in business. But like the way this book was made is 100% unorthodox for how comics are made in the 21st century. And again, careful with the word, I'm lucky. Uh, but, but that's kind of how it's been made. Now, what that does, though, guys, is it kind of puts me back at square one for follow-up projects. Like I have things written, I have things cooking, but like the way parallel got into the world is not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And so I now have to expand my horizons for these other things. Cause now that the dreams happened, I also don't want it to end. Um, 
and I want to keep going. Uh, but to do that, I have to take a bunch of steps uh, in a direction that I'm not very comfortable with, which is a lot more, um, you know, you know, crowdfunding, and then a publisher picks it up if they like it and stuff like that. So that's a, that's a whole new learning curve that I'm facing going forward. You know, fake it till you make it. Um, it's incredibly right. funny that you would say that your whole experience was very unorthodox because we were talking um, before we started recording and you said that we are kind of the target audience as people who should be experiencing like the quarter life crisis. Do you realize that what you've done in attempting to get this published is what every single person our age as parents have told us to do to go out and get a, a get a job? They say, yes. oh, you put yeah. your nice suit on, you get your printed out <laughs> resume, you walk up and you talk to the manager and you ask for an application. Part of it, that's like all my generation knows how to do, I guess, unless you're a lot more tech savvy than I am. But yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. This is, I mean, it's very much, obviously there's that universal appeal of everybody goes through some version of this. Um, so it doesn't matter how old you are when you read it, but yeah, you guys were... Your, you guys were in my brain as I wrote every single page of this, right? Um, I think I'm like a lot of people who I don't, in my brain, I don't see myself as old as I am, but like, it's also a function of having children of a certain age. It's also a function of working with kids year after year after year, and they don't grow older even as I am. And I, you know, I don't see myself until I had knee surgery last year and like my whole body fell apart. Um, like I don't see, you don't see that in your brain as getting older. So like I, I had no problem stepping into 21 and 29 year old land and going, oh yeah, I know exactly what that feels uh, like and, and get inside his head and writing that. And with Landon, is Landon your favorite character in this story, or who do you have the who do you have the most so, fun or interest writing? Oh, um, okay. I remember some of the earliest feedback I got in this book, and 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 the feedback and the release of this was jacked up beyond compare because of the pandemic, right? Like, I mean, it got released right in the middle of things, and it just it, it, it talk about unorthodox and untraditional. Um, I mean, we have, we have, we, we sold for a first time writer, like a way more books for an unknown writer, middle of the pandemic, uh, because all my signings and all my cons got, you know, canceled and we sold out variants. And, and now that the con circuit is back up again, and, and it's got the, the, the Ringo nominations, this book and I myself have been nominated for one of the bigger awards in, in comics, uh, the Ringos to be given away at Baltimore Comic Con, uh, best writer for me and best single issue or story for Parallel and everybody involved. Like, like all this stuff happened and it, the odds were stacked against it, right? But early on, as like feedback is tr trickling in, I remember a couple really early interviews. I was getting my hackles up a little bit because and some of this was one or two of those interviews were kind of being laced with some toxic masculinity and some bros that were maybe conducting the interviews, but there was a lot of hate for Claire. Okay. And <laughs> I can see that <laughs> there was a lot of hate for Claire. And I very much started to, I remember like, I remember three interviews in particular two that were very broy, and they were like yeah she sucks right and then there was one there was a print interview where uh the, the, uh, the female interviewer i think was trying to get me in a gotcha like, oh. I, you know what i mean like 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 that there was a couple of questions 
that were clearly set up for me to say something about me writing this. So like, do you hate this, women? This, this, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, not those words, but very much. Like, is this based on somebody, you know, is this your wife? Is this based on a shitty relationship you have? Are you, you know, is your ice princess there? Because that's how you think of it. That kind of thing. Oh was, my God, it's that. funny that you would even say that because when I read this the first time, I was like, Andrew, you look this guy up, right? Because do we need to warn his wife? Does she know? And then I read it the second time. I just had to make sure. I was like, is this about to be like... So so here's my, here's my personal take on this. I have personally a ton of sympathy for Claire in the second half of this book. A ton of sympathy. The first half of this book is woe is me, Landon. It is the world, uh, Claire my bandmates, my crap, the world is against me and woe is me and all this stuff is happening and, and, and that self-pity that he's got through that whole first half. And the second half for me, I mean, she is type A go-getter and that rubs some people the wrong way. I mean, she has her flaws, but I have so much more sympathy for her in the second half because if you look at the second half, and all his interactions, whether it be with Claire or when he goes to seek out and try to get his own resolution with his bandmates, and they don't give it to him the way that he's expecting it. Um, all of this, all of it is self-created by him, mm-hmm. right? Anything that you can feel sorry for him for a minute, he did all of it to himself. Exactly. Now, was, yeah, but like, like maybe, maybe he and Claire getting together wasn't the best choice, but guess what? It was still a choice. He picked her. And I feel like um when a lot of um a lot of male writers they have this um the the ice princess wife, it's like basically my my wife's a bitch, I hate her. And like I've 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 been around a time or two. I love reading. I read everything. And so when I read that, I'm just like, but you picked her, you dated her, you chose to marry her, you chose to have kids with her, you chose to keep living your life with her. And with him, I think he's with Landon, I think he's so stuck in what he feel like feels like is like this lesser life that he's living. He doesn't realize that he's the person in this relationship who's chosen to give up on their dreams. Claire is incredibly focused. She's incredibly driven. She moves forward. She's one of the youngest executives at her company. Like she's living the life that she wanted. Heart, my heart break you know my heart breaks for her is in the second half when he's he's hurt himself again it's the stare thing right mm-hmm. and yet she's still there she still gets in the hospital she still gets him home and like on her face and, and this is a lot of adam too like on her face like you see it like she is whatever her whatever her faults are on the surface like she is stuck with this self-pitying in a lot of ways, narcissist way longer than she has any need to. Yeah, I was going to say that Claire tried really hard for this relationship, yes. like really hard. It doesn't so. come. Across, it does not. I admit, it does not come across in the front half. And but it's yeah. there. She did. She she stuck with it longer. In a lot of ways, she stuck with it longer than he did. Yeah, she tried. Even because, like you said, she was taking him home from the hospital. She was taking care of him. She even and found she's him a literally taken aback at the thought that not that not that she doesn't understand that things are wrong in their marriage and like in his life but she's like how dare you even imply all this she is his yeah. cheerleader <laughs> yeah so um i mean it, it not in a very nice way but you are 100 percent correct um so so you guys want uh you got a little more inside baseball you want a deleted scene yeah of yes. course <laughs> yeah okay so 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 the whole editing process was very much new to me okay like when you um, when one of, there's like four major 
clay publishing companies in the United States. These are the people who uh, have the rights to all the plays that then all community theaters and all schools get sent a catalog each year. You were telling the exact right to people. We (laughs) We are both members of the International Thespian Society. Okay, so I got I got a couple plays published by by Hewer Publishing. And they send their their uh, an elementary school one and a middle school. And the thing and, and the reason why they take one of the reasons why they take so few plays each year and it's so hard to get a play published by one of the big four publishers is because it's not a process with them. Um, there is no editing. Either your play is what they want or they do not want it. It's like when they when they grabbed the, this play that I wrote. Um, there's no editor saying, yeah, you need to change this X, Y, and Z. It was either this thing is going into print once you sign your contract or we don't want you. And all of my writing, you know, outside of, you know, whatever creative writing I did in school where a teacher gives you a grade, um, was done editor free. I mean, there, like when I was writing plays for fourth graders, there was no fourth graders coming up to me saying, listen, uh, I think you need to change this scene. It needs to be, you know, it didn't happen. And if it did, I'm like, all right, you're, you're nine, shut up. Um, when SourcePoint hooks me up with Bob Sally, who is a ridiculously talented writer in his, in, in his own right. Um, and that first set of edits came in. Oh my God, guys, did I get precious? I threw a tantrum. Uh, I called <laughs> up my best friend, Dougie. Uh, since fifth grade, Dougie's been my best friend, and Dougie is also an attorney. He like looks over my contracts and stuff like that. I'm like, Dougie, you can get me out of this. He wants me to change this and this, and I can't believe, you know, I was just, I was a diva like you wouldn't believe. Well, that's your baby. Now, well, yeah, yeah, but of course, Bob was right about all of it. Okay, but <laughs> one of the scene, one of the things, a scene that got cut down. This is the long way around to get to your little uh, deleted scene. Um, one of the things that got cut down, it's still in there, but I really like this character piece, was I gave Claire a light at the end of the tunnel. And she had, she basically, there was, towards the end of the book, a thing with the detective was, was definitely starting up. Oh, I can um, see that. Yeah, I saw that. Like, like you don't see this because it kind of, we had to take out a panel or two. Um, like, he's the one who, like, drives her uh when she goes that last time and finds the note um he's driving her there you don't see that because i got taken out but that scene in her office when he comes back there was a lot more text and subtext of a flirtation between the two of them um it was something i very consciously wanted to give her like that hey this thing that you know, you just wasted all this time on this this loser Landon <laughs> and all his problems. You know, maybe other dimensional, uh, other versions of him reaching out, um, or he's batshit crazy. Uh, here's something for you too. And I really, it was kind of a sweet scene. And there were some subtleties in it, and um, like the way they he hands her, uh, he handed her a card again, and she's like, I already got this. And um, there's a bunch of little subtle things, but we just didn't have the, the pacing. It slowed things down and there wasn't enough room and, and it was the right decision, but I was still kind of bummed out because it was something I really liked for her. That was actually my favorite part when reading it. Oh, yeah. really? Yes. I, I read romance novels primarily. Like even yeah. when, that's funny to say I have a comic book podcast and most of what I read is actually romance novels. I've been a fan my whole life, but stuff like that, that, that nice little, oh yeah, I've, I've had that. I've kept that around all this time. A second chance romance? 
Well, I mean, the, so the, the the land version of that, forgive me for even saying this out loud, it, it's way too close to like a, a play on words and a pun, but like the parallel version of that <laughs> is, I know, that was so sad. I'm sorry. Um, no, was, I you know, Landon coming, out, Landon coming out of the, well, he's coming out of the drugstore and he bumps into that, to, to that young woman and they, they share a moment and he gives her a flower and it's like, you just see him walking on air because he's, he's fixed, he's better, he feels good about himself and that's, I did that to him to make the next moment when other landing comes back to be that much more devastating, right? Like a, um, a, a fall is much more harmful when you're at a higher height. And I wanted to get him and give him a little glimpse of, of hope, romantic hope maybe, or moving forward hope before I crushed him again. And it was so jarring. It's like, oh, he just gave this woman a flower. Oh, yeah. hello, Landon. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so Landon, obviously he wants to be a rock star and other Landon is a rock star, right? Yeah. Um, so what, can you give us like a name of one of his songs or like an album or something? So it's, it's so funny. Like back in a time in my life where I had this, this thing, oh God, I can't see if I can even remember what it's called. Uh, what's the term? Oh, free time. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> Back when that existed for me, when I had I, I had disposable income and disposable time, um, I was uh, a, a completist slash o- functioning OCD level super fan of things, right? And those things were movies and music and concerts and books and comics. And I, uh, like the concept of a greatest hits album was uh it's it's disgusting to me like if i like enough if i like if there's a band i like enough to own their music i want all of it you know what i'm saying oh same yeah and um and what that kind of you know resulted in music was one of those things like i was i my ears i'm probably about 10 years away from just falling out of my head and not functioning anymore because of the the conscious decision i made between uh, 17 and late 20s to go to every concert I could and stand as close to the stack of speakers as I could. You know what I mean? And and so music has always been a big part of my life, an obsessive part of my life. And yet, if I'm being honest with you, like I knew Adam didn't end up putting it on the wall. I knew I knew what posters were in land in the first apartment that they share in that brownstone um that eventually get taken down i know what landon's musical taste was i know that that band as successful as they are kind of has that that early 21st century not quite garage rock but like like the successor to successful big rock right like they're closer to the foo fighters probably than anybody else Oh, but are okay. not the Foo Fighters. But the truth is, I didn't think about it. Uh, uh, Adam named the band. Adam dropped in, uh, you know, that press conference scene. Like, if there's specific things about getting into the studio and the new album and stuff, like, I let him put that in there. I didn't. Oh. I didn't do the thing that, you know, like, like actors will do when they create the entire backstory. The musical part of that was not something I did. Now, the dynamics between the band right? The human interactions between the cocksure uh, and then drug-addled lead singer, right? 
and the drummer who's got this complex and that complex and that stuff. Now that's something that I drew on, you know, cliches that I knew about this band and that band and whatever, but I didn't create the full back catalog or life for that band actually. See, that's why I was, it was the press conference, you know, sitting there. I was like, I wonder what this next album is going to be like. I was so interested in his music career for some reason. I, I mean, it's going, I mean, they're like, I, I think they're, I don't even know if that next album is going to be successful because I think, <laughs> I think it's going to be, you know, and I know music doesn't work like this in the 21st century. I know that the music industry is not what it was for decades and decades and decades before that, but it's going to be that album that turns off a lot of fans because they're innovating in the studio you know oh yeah um and and it's not going to do like when radiohead broke rock and roll to save rock and roll at the turn of the century it's not going to be that they're going to get in there and they're getting it full of their experimental techniques and it's going to piss everybody off i think (laughs) oh i know what you mean like whenever the artist sits there and they're like oh let's do something different how can we change our sound and then nobody wants you to change your sound like when maroon five made hands all over and all of the entire world turned on them yes (laughs) i think you know what i think um i think landon though is the lead guitarist okay so here i am like a minute ago saying i haven't thought about this at all now we're just um i think landon has a thread of russell hammond who is the fictional lead guitarist in almost famous cameron crowe's movie where he is by far the most musically talented in that band um but does not allows everybody else to kind of stretch their legs or whatever and it maybe holds him back musically a little okay see i like that i was so interested in his music career so i was like i wanted to know but um okay so are you working on anything new right now yes uh so this summer i wrote and submitted a prose short story to source point um there's a possible uh prose anthology about local legends so i wrote about this creepy place that i grew up uh, and we used to drive out to as teenagers when we were born on a saturday night called the shoe tree that was like the most ridiculous local legend of a, of a serial killer who killed a bunch of kids and threw their shoes up in a tree. It's like ridiculous, but yet scared the crap out of us when we were kids. So I wrote a story about that, 5,000 words, that's been turned in. Um, but the two comic projects that are kind of either simmering or in some different form of completion, but need to go to the next stage of, uh, of what I need to do to get things funded and thus getting a publisher to pick it up. Um, I'm pretty passionate about both of them. The one I'm going to tell you about is a project called Jane American. And I envision it as like a, you know, four issue series. And it is a post-World War II story taking place in a small town in Michigan, Plymouth, where actually I grew up. And it's very much dedicated not only to my late grandmother, but to all the young women who have come through my classroom in the last 22 years. Because in a way, it is similar to Parallel in the fact that it has a nice candy-coated comic book wrapping, okay? Um, It's not dark, twisted sci-fi. This time, it is superheroes, okay? Not superheroes, but the idea that somebody through, in in Jane's case, um, when she finds out that her her father uh, has died uh, serving um, in a bomber crew in World War II over Europe in 1942. Uh, that trauma triggers and she has enhanced strength and speed, okay? It's kept hidden. Um, so it's got that, that superhero gleam to it, or that superpower gleam to it. But just like Parallel, it's really about these themes underneath. And this story is 100% about 
identity and comfort in your identity and willingness to express who you are. And it's about gender and it's about race. Um, and it, it's very personal to me because there's things about it that uh, not only is the main character named after my grandmother who um, tried to do a little bit of, you know, uh, work, be in the workforce post-World War II when the troops came, when the, the, the boys came home and all the Rosie Riveters had to go home and go back to the kitchen and how much that bothered her. But really who it's dedicated to as Jane struggles with this thing about herself that she hides is all these young women who have, you know, whether they were 10 or in my modern teaching career, 14, that have come through my room over the years and even in the 21st century are still uncomfortable in their own skins and how unfair that is. And then you extrapolate that back to 1946 and I can't even imagine how hard it was to, to try to be yourself when almost every aspect of society said you couldn't. Um, and so uh, the other thing I'm really excited about this project is the, the, the research that I got to do and where it takes place, um, it, uh, I'm a history nerd and there was, um, I don't know how much you guys you know, are history nerds or, or, or know about what the, the war manufacturing industry in World War II, but like, you know, tons of different uh, companies and factories got war contracts and they converted their factories from cars and whatever to airplanes and bombers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And there was this factory in Plymouth called Wall Wire, which was literally a, a wire factory that my great grandfather, I found it actually worked in. And they got a war contract uh, at the beginning of the war to make these things called Marsden mats. And if you're a history nerd, even if you don't know what a Marsden mat is, you know what a Marsden mat is. It's these long kind of like corrugated sheet metal things with holes punched in them that um, they used to make the temporary runways in yeah. Europe and the Pacific. Okay, so that you can like lay down a runway. Yeah, yeah, so they're yeah. called Marsden mats. Yeah, so like when you make those temporary run- runways to, to island hop and stuff you know, on the way to Japan and things. And this, this, this uh, uh, plant in Plymouth, um, was one of only two factories in the United States that kept their contract post-World War II um, because the Berlin airlift was coming and stuff like that. There was a place in Alabama and there was this Plymouth place. And so um, I got to take a tour of the actual factory, check this out, literally four days before they partitioned it and tore it all down and turned it into like office buildings. Oh my God. And I got like a like video and pictures of the original structure and, and blah, 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 blah. So... Uh, the story, you know, Jane has got these abilities, they are keeping them hidden. Uh, her mom, you know, her dad worked in the factory before he went off, he dies in the war, that's what manifests her powers. Her mom is a straight up old school Rosie the Riveter working in that factory for the war years. But when the boys come home, all those jobs are gone and they can't support the family anymore. So kind of in the first page of the issue, you we see Jane in her mom's best sundress, who at 15, it's way too big for her like going down there to talk to the plant manager who was a family friend is like try to get a secretary job, anything to help out. You know, mom's doing laundry. It's not enough to support her and her brother. And you know, he's a sweet old man. He would love to help him, but he can't, you know, your father worked here, your mother worked here, but like there's no position for you. And they're walking down the, the, the factory floor and you, you see her and, uh, and, and Christian, you as a Superman fan, this is going to be, this is going to be catnip for you. Are you ready? <laughs> ready. So they're walking down the they're walking down the thing, and you see Jane kind of getting more and more dejected as the manager is saying, "Yeah, yeah, you know, we love you, but we can't, we can't." And she's like falling further and further back, and she's uh, he's a big step, you know, several steps ahead of her. And one of the 
you know, the, the rolling kind of upper conveyor belt things with a bunch of those Mars and Nats, you know, strapped up there, comes loose and they all come crashing down. They're going to crush him. And it's inevitable, right? You've got that scene and it's tense and it comes down. He knows he's going to die. It blacks out. And he opens his eyes. And what I wrote in there uh, is literally the scene from the first Superman movie where like toddler Clark is lifting up the car. And she's just <laughs> there in her sundress holding the Mars and Nats above her head, not breaking a sweat. And he's like, you're hired. You know, and so like, the story is going to basically the story where the where the identity politics come into it, where race and gender come into it, is her now working in this factory with all of these veterans or people who got out of the war that have very distinct views of where a girl slash woman should be, and her being able to hold their own for, her, but still keeping her powers hidden. And there in her mom's Rosie, I mean, her superhero costume is her mom's Rose, you know, way too big Rosie the Riveter costume. And dealing with those men and the roles that they put on her. And then um, basically, and this is researched as well and uh, historically accurate, there's a place, a a town south of Plymouth called Canton, which is where I grew up. And there was this neighborhood that existed as kind of like low rent apartments when I was a kid called Canton Commons. And I did my research and what Canton Commons was in the 20s, 30s, and the 40s was one of the very, check this out, one of the very first government subsidized um, great migration housing projects, right? Basically, the, the huge population of African-Americans fleeing the South and coming up to work in Detroit factories. And this was one of the places where they had government subsidized housing. And so you kind of have, oh my God, I'm about to do it again. And I apologize. You have these parallel storylines <laughs> for the, the, you know, not only are, have women been kicked out of the workforce when the boys come home, but all the African-American veteran men have too. And Jane strikes up a, a, a friendship and there's, the, so, so it's all in there. And, and, and I'm rambling and telling you guys, you know, way too much and way too many details about something that doesn't even exist in the world yet. Though the first issue is written and the next three are plotted out, whatever. But as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, and it's very much dedicated to like people that I know who have gone through some, some stuff that, me as like a, a straight white male don't have to deal with, but get to see and have my heart broken by every single day for the last 22 years. Oh, no, I like that it all came full circle with like that factory where your uh, you said your grandfather worked and my great grandfather actually worked in there in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. It all came full circle. And here you are writing a story about it. Your grandmother's named after the character that's or yeah. the character's named after your grandmother, rather not the yes. other way around. And actually I got to take the tour I get to take the tour with uh, with my grandfather. I mean, my grandmother was was several years gone by that point, but my grandfather got to go there with me and take the tour. At uh, at that point, he was like ninety five years old, so that was pretty special too. That's amazing. Well, whenever that one comes out, we're definitely going to have to be reading that because I mean, your story already was great, so we had to read the others. You know, you know, <laughs> and as as a multiple minority, being both a, a woman and a black woman, I'm very uniquely interested in this because um, my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, was uh, 20 years older than her, so she was oh. born in like 1929. So she lived through the war, like that was when she was very young, and she had kids my grandmother's age. And then obviously, um, you know, my grandfather, um, uh, he was an Air Force veteran, and he went to Vietnam. And when he came back, the reason why I'm able to have the life that I have is because my life was so different from a lot of um, the descendants of Black veterans from World War II. Um, They, my grandparents were able, my house that I live in now is completely paid off. And it was paid off during their lifetime, like in their mid 40s, because um, of the opportunities they they were able to have because of um, 
I don't want to say like the minimal equality that was achieved from when they were young to them being young adults, but. But, 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 but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like, and, and, and the, I mean, obviously I have like these real historical realistic places where, where things like this happen, but like, like Michigan, uh, like Plymouth is one of the westernmost suburbs of Detroit, about halfway between Detroit and Ann Arbor. And it's like the perfect setting for this because you have Michigan for decades and decades and decades being the, the dichotomy of of what the population here is in this state, in this area. It, it's amazing because you have, you, have, you have Detroit right here and you have this huge industrial complex for decades and decades where um, all kinds of different minorities lived here. And then you literally uh, hillbilly up the road in Howell, like 45 minutes north, is the headquarters of the Michigan KKK for decades. <laughs> Holy shit. And it's like, it's funny that you would say that. All right within like this half an hour drive and like I, you know, it just it blows my mind that it's all right here, and the clashes that come out of it, and how, um, you know, the, the injustice and inequities that kind of that, that have played out in this state for so long. Oh boy, do we have experience for that? I don't know if you know this about us, but we are actually from Texas. Well, <laughs> and the fam, the the town that my family is from, that my uh, great aunt that I was talking about lived in for her entire life, it's actually the site of one of the most famous hate crimes in American history. Um, like uh, we, so we know about like sundown towns, places where you very much can and can't go. Uh, there's a building that they were trying to uh, vote on, vote for the city to tear down a couple of years ago. That used to be like the headquarters of the KKK, and the building is still up. It's very ugly. Um, yeah. I don't know why they said they wouldn't tear it down, but they haven't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Texas, uh, Texas from uh, day one to 2021. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Just, what was it? Uh, four days ago, whenever a woman couldn't even get an abortion now, like, that's Texas. Yep. Oh, yep, that's Texas. no, Texas two years after the Civil War where people were still enslaved. One of my projects right now is for the up- upcoming school year to get... Uh, get a, a piece of curriculum change where uh, one of our marking periods um i'm trying to get randy pink's novel angel of greenwood into my classroom into the eighth graders hands which is a beautiful teenage love story in the setting of of um uh the 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 greenwood massacre um in uh oklahoma which, you know, Black Wall Street, right? Uh, 19, what? Oh, God, I'm going to blink on the year right now. But like the uh, Black Wall Street that basically gets burned down by the rest of uh, Tulsa. It's this beautiful novel that that Miss Randy Pink made. And I've been in contact with her and we're trying to get that into the classroom. And it's probably not going to be the easiest thing because uh, where I live and where I teach, um, uh, there is pushback sometimes. But, uh, you know, as soon as it's district mandated curriculum, then they can, you know, my, my certain type of parent can complain as much as they want, but uh, it's what the district decided, so. And um, you know yeah. what? One of the most important things um, when I was uh, at the same age as your students was knowing that I had teachers who were willing to fight for me so that I could have something other than, like, and these are books that I enjoy, like uh, yeah. Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, But Not Buddy, yes. uh, Watson's Go to Birmingham, 1963. Like, oh, my, da- <laughs> my daughter read it last year. My daughter read it last year for seventh grade. I don't know. It's important for kids, like, even in... Um, what what did that little girl say a couple of years ago where she said we need to be able to be able to read books about something other than white boys and their dog 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how I feel. Um, and then, and this will make you happy. Uh, one of the books that would be replacing is uh, The Whitest of White Boys, Johnny Tremaine. <laughs> 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 that would be going bye-bye and uh, Angel of Greenwood be coming in. So it's, it's funny. So like I was, I'm really excited about Angel of Greenwood because so in, in, in one of our units, it's, um, you know, it almost sounds like a history class, but it's, it's an ELA exploration and, and we tie it to a bunch of narrative writing and stuff, but like it, it's an exploration of the concept of the American dream and the way we dig into it is through about a half a dozen different, um, very blatantly oppressed groups in American history. And um, one of the deep dives we do is on Japanese internment, right? World War II. We've got our own set of concentration camps, but they were kind of kept secret and not apologized for for like 50 years swept under the rug. And what's funny is like for my parents' generation, they literally went through school without knowing that we had uh, several hundred thousand Japanese Americans, uh, two thirds of them American citizens behind barbed wire for uh, anywhere between three and you know four and a half years. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't something taught in t- history books and it just wasn't even something they were aware of. Okay. And, and, and then it starts to leak in, in my generation, it starts to be taught in schools. And now it's like, it, like when the kids get to me in eighth grade, it's something that they have all heard of and we go a little deeper or whatever. And the, the, the Tulsa, and I put this in quotes, race riots, because it, it wasn't a race riot. It was literally uh, white Tulsa coming in and burning down the most prosperous black community in the United States at that time in the 1920s. They call it black wall street for a reason. Um, that for this generation of kids is a lot like Japanese internment was for my parents' generation. Like just so many people don't know that it even happened. Do you know what I mean? So it, it really means a lot to me to hopefully get that in there. And yeah, not I didn't to think... make everything about comic books, but I found out a lot of people didn't know things about American history um, from watching like Captain America, The Winter Soldier. A lot of people didn't know about Operation Paperclip. And I had to tell people, oh, that's real. Oh, right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. watching the Watchmen series, when people mm-hmm. found out about Tulsa, I was like, you guys didn't know that? That's real. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, who writes, it, it all depends on who writes textbooks and who decides in the curriculum. And if there are people who would rather not uh, admit those uh, bruises, if not outright tragedies in our past, then they don't get in there. Yep, agreed. I didn't even know about it till after school. Like when I was done with school, I learned about it later on in life because they don't teach that. In and Texas. think about the Texas public education system. There was a yes. book a couple of years ago that was made for children. Um, I think maybe like, oh God, I'm getting old, like 10 years ago. Um, it was about George Washington's happy slaves making him a birthday cake. Um, um, I mean, it, like the the malleability of a child's mind goes both ways, right? Like uh, something that we show the eighth graders right before winter break is we show the old 19, what is it, like 1963 Rankin Bass, uh, um, Rudolph Redner's uh stop motion animation movie. You know that you know what I'm talking about, right? With yeah. Movie and, okay. And and it's like it's a very interesting conversation with eighth graders who are, are suddenly self-aware and are starting to have opinions and aren't necessarily their parents to go, okay, so like, what is this really about? And they start to see the symbolism about physical differences, right? And, 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 and you know, Rudy's differences, he's got a different color nose. He is physically different. Uh, Hermes, the dentist, has a different lifestyle choice. It's like, there's, there's all this subtle, not so subtle revolutionary uh you know treat people the way you want to be treated for all these different groups you could plug in you know the kids come up with they come up with 
sexuality, you know, uh, 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 analogies and, and race and, and physical disability things. And, and it's all very smart. And then there's always somebody who goes, yeah, but, and what they notice is as progressive as like Rudolph was in 1963 on X, Y, and Z front, it is misogynist up the wazoo to a level that like is like, it's like so cringy. And we always end our conversation with like, okay, this is awesome for this oppressed group, this oppressed group, this oppressed group. It's, it's getting this idea into kids' heads, you know, through the back door of it's okay to look at this difference and be okay with it. But at the same time as treating women like crap on a level that is just mind boggling and you go, okay, well, does it lose its worth then? And um, it kind of goes both ways, right? Like, like you, you can use that portal and symbolism or whatever, or maybe something more overt. And that's the way you teach kids about X, Y, and Z. But at the exact same time, when you write a book about George Washington's happy slaves, it's just as influential on that, on that, you know, uh, developing child's mind as it is when you watch something that says, hey, it's okay to look physically different than somebody else. So it, it's, it's a two-way street for sure. And it is so funny that you would say that about the, the strange analogies, because that actually springboards, springboards uh, directly into the very last question that we have for you. Um, cool. So just for me, and we know that you're a huge X-Men fan. Yes. Okay. Are, and you going for, are, are we going to talk about the mutant metaphor? No, actually, oh, okay, I okay. already said it was a weird analogy. I mean, it's, it is what it is. X-Men was a product of its time that hopefully as time goes on, will continue to be, you know, the, the ultra progressive thing that I think they initially thought that it was, that it could that they really wanted it be. to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but let's say Chris Claremont run, you know, who's your favorite yeah. X-Man? Um, I have got the lamest, easiest answer. And that is, it's always been Wolverine. And I know that's the worst <laughs> answer, but like, I was, a, I was a kid of the 80s and the 90s. There's like, it was Batman, it was Wolverine, it was eventually Sandman. I had, I had a Wolverine poster, a Jim Lee Wolverine poster on my wall. I know it's, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. It's so bland. It's so down the middle. Um, and but, listen, yeah, I'm not was... going to call you old by saying this, but you were growing up in the era where comic book artists were becoming superstars. So for you yes. to even say that well, you're like, it was a Jim Lee Wolverine poster, you meant that with your heart. <laughs> it, it's funny. Now, now this, this is something we didn't really talk about today, but like, like my comic book fandom personally, and this was true as a kid. And then I took like the very typical, almost nine year hiatus, like, like middle late teens. I walked away for about nine years and it was, um, a Neil Gaiman coming back to comics to fight Todd McFarlane on a, on a lawsuit about a spawn issue that he wrote that brought me back into comic shops to, to, to pick up a book. And then I've just been, you know, OCD completist ever since, but in my adult manifestation of a comic book fan, and even as my kid one, I was almost perfectly split 50, 50 down the middle in, in nerdy collector. Like, give me that, uh, give me that shiny cover. Give me that uh, number one issue. And the other half was just a, a voracious reader of good stories. So you in like the very early nineties, very early nineties, when image is blowing up and like stories are thin, but you know, uh, big muscles are everywhere. Right. <laughs> oh um, yeah. And, and fancy, you know, fancy uh, foil embossed covers are everywhere. And Superman and Batman are getting, you know, horrifically mangled, mangled or killed for sales. Um, 
I actually drifted as a reader to the Valiant universe, which was much more Barry Windsor Smith uh, subdued realistic art, much more well-written stories in a much more tightly interwoven universe than just the crash bang splash um, of, of image at the exact same time. So did I, did I seek out my spawn number one? Of course I did. But <laughs> what I started reading was something a lot more story-based and art that didn't need to have uh, women posing like they're in a cheesecake calendar every two minutes and dudes with muscles, with muscles on top of muscles and muscles on top of those muscles. So I kind of went both directions at once. It's funny you say the muscles thing, but then Wolverine was your favorite. I know, <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous. I get, I, I am a walking contradiction, and I'm just smart enough to understand and be self aware enough to know <laughs> that I'm a walking contradiction, and it drives me just as much nuts as it probably drives you. <laughs> no, I love it. It's hilarious. I love it. But no, mine was Jean Grey, so it's not like I'm too deep either. Oh, wow! Yes. <laughs> oh my God, it's Jean Grey. We never would have guessed by looking at you. I have the Dark Phoenix symbol tattooed <laughs> into my arm, so. Do you really? That's fantastic. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. I I um I will trade. I I love Jean Grey, but I will trade ten Jean Greys for one storm. For one storm, as you should. I think Storm is the most badass female character in all of X Men history. I think she is. She is it. She's the jam. Close and you're second. right. <laughs> and you're right. Oh, yeah. No, my favorite. <laughs> I agree on this. From that era, it's actually Thunderbird. Um, but oh, really? in the all time, it's Iceman. I don't know what it is about, but oh, I think it, it might have been the movie where I saw him and I was like, that's the one. I pick him. Good old Bobby Drake. We have already taken up a lot of your time, Jason, but thank you for joining us today. It, like, it was fun having you here. Oh my God, it was my pleasure entirely. You guys are brilliant. Uh, I love that you're doing this. You're very, very good at your jobs as well. So thank you very much for oh, having thanks. me. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say to anybody who wants to, uh, you can um, you can follow me over on Instagram. It's my only social media because I'm a teacher, and you gotta be careful of that kind of stuff. It's at J Douglas Writes. Come and follow me. You've got questions about parallel. I will talk to you until you don't want to talk to me anymore. Um, obviously, <laughs> you can hear that I could talk for a long time from this, <laughs> uh, and you can get you can get parallel uh, if you. There's actually not very many copies left. If you are interested in this book, it is going to sell out by October. Um, I'm going to probably be going to Baltimore Comic Con because of the Ringo Awards and I might be presenting and I don't think I'm going to win any because I'm literally up against people who write Batman. That's not going to happen. But we're uh, now that conventions are back, like it is almost sold out. So if you want one, sourcepointpress.com, you can get digital, you can get print. There's only a few left. And if you hit me up, um, one of the kind of nerding out things that really happened that was cool about this, you know, the fanboy for me when I was 12 is three variant covers got made of the book and they're all pretty sweet. There's this Shattered Glass one, there's this Donnie Darko homage one, and two of them sold out within like 24, 48 hours. And there's, I think, 23 left of the other one. So if you want a copy of this book. Uh, now is the time. So sourcepointpress.com is one way to do it. You see me at a convention, you see me at Motor City or at Baltimore, um, come and say hi and I'll sign a book for you and we'll chat. Yes, and everybody should pick up a copy of this book because if you like the very dark, heavy themes that are in a lot of Batman comics, this book has the same thing. It's very well written and it's very interesting, very easy to reread. So everyone should pick it up as well as he's an indie comic writer. So we want to support indie comics. Um, so you'd rather some big corporation won this award than an indie artist? Come on, come on. 
a, a public school teacher, one of our frontline heroes. Yes, buy his book, y'all. Buy it. And I think that's all for this episode of Truth Believers. Everyone, be sure to check out Parallel and Jason. Of course, we wish you the best of luck at the 2021 Ringo Awards. Even though, as you said, you are up against people who literally write Batman. I believe in you. You got this. You got this. And as always, if you want to leave a suggestion on anything we read or watch, you can find and DM us on Instagram at True Believers Pod and on Twitter at True Believers P. Or you can even email us at one true believers pod at gmail.com. Also, we have TikTok. Bye. Bye.